everybody. Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? Uh, you know, about as good as it can be uh, without being able to go outside, but at the same time, it's not like it's been uh, rosy weather out here in Calgary. I think today's the first day this week we've really been over zero, and it's one degree. That's not too bad, because I know out here, the last couple of days, we've been getting hail and rain and all kinds of crap, so, you know, it's a, it's a nice excuse to stay inside. Yeah, fair enough. So, Tim, I'm very excited to be here today, not only because today's episode is our 2019-2020 Ottawa Centre's second half recap, but because we have a very special guest on the line to help us out with today's episode. Our guest today is a writer for the Sens blog, Silver 7 Sens, as well as a fellow Sens podcaster with his podcast, Internal Budget. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us from Toronto, Ontario, the home of the 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors, our guest, Brandon Mackey. Brandon, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me. I got to ask real quick because, you know, we're talking about weather. How is the weather out in Toronto today? You're, yeah, you're going to hate me because it's gorgeous here. It's sunny. It's a little over 10 degrees. I just took the dog for a walk and it's beautiful outside. I was almost too warm in my hoodie, actually. So, <laughs> so my condolences to you guys. <laughs> we'll get there soon enough yeah i know what well, it's not even april yet right so we still got a ways to go yeah, it's april 5th man <laughs> hey oh. where's your calendar <laughs> i don't even know what day it is anymore tim oh shit yeah that i agree with you on and the days are all blending together right now hey i still have to work so brandon i want to mention right off the top that as well, like we're very excited to have you in the podcast, but also because we're breaking some new ground here today with you being on. Because I understand that you were a student at the University of Toronto, and this is the yep. very first time that there is a fellow U of T alumnus. Because my esteemed co-host, Mr. Tim Jancy, is also a varsity blue. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> hey, it was just grad school. Okay, okay. No, yeah, I love U of T. Uh, I came here on a football scholarship in 2017. Uh, ended up getting hurt in my second year. Wasn't able to finish my playing career, but it's hard to say anything bad about it. I mean, it's tough. Like the academic rigors are something that um, are well documented, but it's a great it's a great learning environment. It's a cool place to live at the same time. You know, you're right in the heart of downtown Toronto, but the university is also kind of like its own little community. So. It's, it's an experience that you're not likely to get anywhere else. Uh, I really can't say anything bad about U of T. Yeah, and then, uh, at least on my end, it's the top 20 school in the world for economics, so yeah. the quality of the education is second to only very few. Exactly, yeah. So, Brandon, you were mentioning that you played football for U of T. What position were you playing for the varsity blue? Oh, well, I was defensive. I was defensive end. I was, I was, um, well, defensive line. I, I kind of was all over the place. Uh, but yeah, I, I was uh, signed as a defensive end. I never got to dress for a game. I, my first year, I missed the entire year with the shoulder surgery. My second year, a um, couple of concussions in rapid succession that actually ended my playing career. But that year, I also dealt with, I sprained my ankle and tore some ligaments up in there. I broke my hand, play, played through all of that. And then finally, uh, I had a second concussion that uh, it took me about a year to recover from, actually. So just wasn't smart for me to continue playing. But yeah, it was a great time. Uh, the coaching staff is great. I'm still in touch with all the guys. They're great. They're phenomenal people and really great athletes. They had the best uh, passing attack in Canada this year. So they're probably going to make some noise this year, this fall. They're on the up and up and uh, expect them to be pushing for a playoff spot this year. Awesome. 
Now, before we get into our 2019-20 Ottawa Senators second half recap, usually with these kind of episodes, especially with somebody that we haven't had on before, we like to do a little bit of, to get to know you. And a question I always love asking whenever I get a chance to chat with a fellow Sens fan, whether through the show or when I'm out in public, how did you become a fan of the Ottawa Senators? So I grew up in a hockey family. My dad played in the OHL. My uncle played in the OHL. My brother was good enough to play in the OHL. But I became a hockey fan in January of 2007. Uh, my dad paid a visit to Ottawa with, uh, uh, to see a friend of his, and the, his friend happened to have season tickets. So uh, the Senators were playing the Bruins, and my dad's a lifelong Boston Bruins fan. So they, uh, they went and checked out a game. Uh, Ottawa ended up winning, I believe. But my dad came home with a copy of Score Magazine, the game day publication that the Sens give out. And I, I wasn't really, you know into hockey at the time i played it it was more of like a casual fan i didn't really watch it or anything like that but uh for whatever reason my dad gave me this magazine and i was just hooked flipping through the pages and learning about guys like daniel alfredson and uh, ray emery and heatley and spezza and mike fisher who ended up becoming my favorite player so yeah from i jumped on in january of 07 it was a good time to jump on obviously uh following them to the cup final that year and just from there it was kind of it was just one of those things where, like I said, I was hooked. Uh, I ended up going to my first game that fall for my birthday in November of 2007. Uh, again, playing the Bruins. Fisher scored the first goal. He scored the winning goal. Uh, he was first star of the game, and uh, my dad had actually arranged it secretly that I got to meet him after the game. So I got to meet a bunch of the guys like Fisher, obviously, and then Felino and Redden and Spezza and Chris Neal. So... You know, it was just—it's just a lifelong love that's kind of grown since that January, and uh, it hasn't always been the the most pleasant road to be on. But uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love this team. I love the position I'm in covering them now with the blog and with the podcast. And uh, and yeah, I just—I—I'll uh, I, I, always love this team. So just out of curiosity, Brandon, because you mentioned that a number of your family members played in the Ontario Hockey League, what kind of what teams were they playing for during their careers? Um, my dad played for the Windsor Spitfires. Uh, he spent 17 games there, I believe. Actually, um, was teammates with Claude Julien, who's obviously the coach of the Canadians oh, wow. now. Yeah, and my uncle played for the Oshawa Generals. Um, I believe he spent something like two or three years there. But, uh, but yeah, so they both ended up playing in the O. My cousin Ryan Crouch actually played for the Wolves as well, for the Sudbury Wolves, sorry, of the Ontario Hockey League. Um, he spent, I believe, three years there more recently before moving on to the Windsor Lancers before funnily and well funnily enough his career actually ended with concussions too so but yeah like I said I come from a strong hockey family it's still a strong hockey family my dad uh, still coaches youth hockey back home in Sudbury my brother's kind of slowly getting into the coaching side of it his playing career just wrapped up a, a couple of years ago but yeah like we've we've lived and breathed hockey for as long as I can remember awesome because I know one of my buddies uh, who grew up in Ontario, he was telling me that he got called up to play a couple games for the Brampton Battalion. And so oh, cool. when, when he and I were talking about this, and I was like, oh, okay, well, who were some of your teammates? Thinking, oh, yeah, some scrubs or whatever. And he's like, well, I mean, I was teammates with Matt Duchesne and Cody Hodgson. Yeah. I was like, holy crap, are you serious? But it's funny, when I first <laughs> met him, and he was telling me that he grew up with, like, guys that went on to play in the NHL. And like I said, I was thinking, okay, some scrub guy played a couple games. I'm like, okay, who are you buddies with? He goes, Sean Monahan and Tyler Sagan. I was like, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, like he was telling me, like his brothers were really good friends with Sean Monahan, and he grew up in this house. So, pretty cool stuff. And I always love hearing those kind of stories, right? When 
you know, kids from Ontario, even out here that grew up, because, you know, Jamie Benn and Jordy Benn grew up in Victoria, so you hear those kinds of stories about those guys playing for the teams. So I'm very fascinated to always hear those kinds of stories, Brandon. Yeah, my cousin actually has a funny story about Patrick Kane juking him out of his jock straps. So, <laughs> so yeah, you, you get to hear a couple of those, and uh, and that's another thing, right? Like, I got to go to Sudbury Wolves games when I was young to watch my cousin play, and uh it's just been, like I said, it's just been this lifelong thing. I didn't jump in as a hockey fan, you know, in the middle of my life. It's something that's grown and obviously transitioned to more of a media side of things now. Um, I love what I'm doing on the writing side of it and the podcast. And, and yeah, I just love hockey. It was something that I came back to when my football career ended, especially. And it's something that helped me get through that as well. So, I, I, you know, I love the game. I live and breathe it. And like I said, I've said it like three times now, but I couldn't be happier doing what I'm doing. As we said off the top, you are currently a writer for the blog Silver 7 Sends. Over the years, Silver 7 has gotten a reputation for their high quality of content they've put out. Talk to us a little bit about how you came to be a writer for Silver 7, and did you feel any pressure when you joined them knowing of the site's reputation? Yeah, anytime you're going to somewhere that has such a good reputation, you kind of ask yourself, am I worthy of this? Like, you know, do I really, can I really live up to this? So that was definitely a concern for me just because I had read the blog for years. Um, I was, I, I was, uh, I was active on it somewhat. Um, I wrote a few fan posts for it. Uh, then I saw in the summer of 2018 that they were actually looking for a couple new staff writers. So I decided, uh, why not? I'll throw my, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring and, I just attached some fan posts to it and said, hey, look, I wrote these. I wrote some other stuff. Like, uh, just let me know. And, and uh, yeah, they ended up getting back to me and, uh, and Nada, who both write for the site now. And uh, Ross, who was the editor at the time, actually told me, hey, man, like, I was hoping you would apply. I've read your fan posts, and they're really good. So right away, that was obviously a huge compliment coming from someone like Ross. So that was how it came to be. Um, I'm coming up on my two years, I believe, in May or June. So, yeah, and, and you, you, just to what you said about the pressure aspect of it, um, I definitely knew what I was getting into, you know, um, just based on the quality. You know, it was a re- there was a reason I had followed it for so long, and I had been an active member of the site. So I was looking forward to it, but at the same time, I understood the responsibility that came with it, and that's something that I've tried to always keep in mind even two years on now. Yeah, but imagine with the pressure of being on Silver 7, it must have given you a lot of confidence, like you're saying, when people like Ross and some of their writers have said to you, like, hey, you know, I was hoping that you would join the site. Like, your stuff's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, funnily enough, one of the things that actually gave me confidence was when people started disagreeing with me. Uh, I remember in particular, um, again, summer of 2018, it was Canada Day, July 1st, and the Senators didn't re-sign Eric Carlson that day, and that was the day we all kind of knew that he was going to be out the door fairly soon. Um, so I was really angry, um, and I, I wrote this piece, uh, is, I think it was called The Senators Take the Coward's Way Out on Carlson or something like that. And uh, I just, it was a pretty, admittedly pretty scathing indictment of how Eugene Melnick and Pierre Dorian had handled everything and just from an organizational perspective, how angry we as fans were and people started disagreeing with me. Cause they're like, Oh, I think they said some stuff like, Oh, well, you know, they can't tip their hand and, and uh, you know, they say they made him an offer for X amount of dollars because then his, it'll, 
decreases trade value or something like that. And then I basically said, yeah, well, he shouldn't be, you know, being traded in the first place. So when people and prominent people, I think it was like Senschirp actually. Oh wow. Yeah, he was he he kind of called me out on Twitter over it, and no no disrespect intended, obviously. You know, I like Chirp a lot. I, I read a lot of his stuff, and uh, I didn't take any of it personally, but um, it caused a pretty huge debate. I think at the time it was one of our most uh, one of our articles that had generated the most traffic. So yeah, but like what really gave me the confidence was I had some people, some credible people, people I respected who took my side and said, hey, you know, you're 100% right on this. And I had other people, prominent people who disagreed with me, but, you know, I found myself saying, okay, that's a good point, but I feel like my point still stands. So that was one of the things that actually really, you know, made me feel like I belonged, funnily enough, was when people started disagreeing with me. Well, it's kind of, in a bizarre way, it shows that people actually take what you say seriously. Absolutely, yeah. to write a disagreement. <laughs> Yeah, that's 100% it. it. The fact that people are reading it and the fact that I'm making people think to the degree that they feel inclined to say, well, no, this isn't how it is. And, and it's a fine line to walk, right? You can't just go out there and say anything you want without backing it up because that's how you ruin your credibility. But um, I felt like my argument was well presented. Um, looking back on it now, it was probably a little more emotional than I would something write today, uh, than something I would write today, sorry. But, uh, but yeah, I, I still look back on that one fondly. It generated a ton of comments and a ton of traffic on Twitter. So it was something that didn't even di- didn't die down for a few days. But, um, but yeah, that, that's the kind of moment that sticks out to me where I, it was my kind of welcome to the show moment. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay, like, this is how things are. Um, and this is what you this is the kind of thing you got to do in order to keep people reading your stuff and paying attention to you. Because at the end of the day, if nobody's reading your stuff, then then what you're doing is fruitless, right? Like, you're no good to anybody, so. As well as being a blogger, you recently started your own podcast, Internal Budget. Yeah. At the time of this recording, 11 episodes have been released, with a 12th going to be released here in the next day or so. With the most recent episode, at the time of this recording, featuring Haley Salvain from The Athletic. Talk to us a little bit about how the idea of the podcast came about, and did you see it more as its own thing, or as an extension of what you're doing with Silver 7? Uh, it's more of its own thing. It's something that I have total creative control over. Um, I don't work with anybody else on it. I write it myself. I produce it myself. I edit it myself. Uh, but how it came to be was I had always kind of fiddled with the idea of doing something like that. Um, and around December, uh, I started, you know, just listening to some different podcasts and different YouTube videos, people who are successful and in different realms of, uh, I guess different aspects of life. Um, and one of the things that kept sticking out to me was people saying, produce as much content as you can, just content, 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 and don't care what people think. And that was the thing that was really started with that really began kind of, you know, the genesis of internal budget. I just decided that this was something I was going to do. It was something I wanted to do. I wanted to talk some hockey and put myself out there. And uh, I didn't really care how many people listened to it. And, you know, it was just something I was going to do. And uh, it took off better than I expected, to tell you the truth. Um, I did the first, I think, five episodes by myself. 
just for about half an hour. And then I had Colin on, Colin Cudmore from Silver 7 on for a trade deadline special, and we talked about it together. And I was like, okay, well, that, that was kind of fun. I like doing the guest thing. Um, so I just tried to keep it up. And especially now, um, everything that's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think everybody can just use a little more connection and a little more positivity. So I've done my best to keep the guest thing going every week. Um, I like talking to new people every week. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some pretty high-profile people, I would say now. Um, and they've all been great. Uh, every one of my guests are just phenomenal people to talk to. It's not a smoke and mirrors thing where I talked to one person before and then they're totally different on the pod, totally different on the podcast. Everyone I've talked to has been super genuine. Uh, you mentioned Haley last week. She's phenomenal. She's hilarious. Like, uh, it was one of the funnier episodes we've, I've done. So, so yeah, um, that was kind of how it came about. And, uh, yeah, that's, I think you mentioned, uh, about it being its own thing. I think that's what I like about it. Um, I love writing for Silver 7, don't get me wrong. I love being part of that team. We have a great group of writers, and Nate is a phenomenal editor who lets me do things, maybe even maybe things I shouldn't be allowed to do. But, uh, yeah, and uh, I like the fact that internal budget is me. You know, um, what you see is what you get. There's no BS about it, and yeah, it's just unapologetically me. I did get a chance to listen to the latest episode of Internal Budget, and I thought it was fantastic. I wanted to let you know that right Thank away. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, there is one specific guest I want to ask about, because over the last year or so, he's really gotten a lot of traction on Sense Twitter, and that, of course, is Finnegan's Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did Finnegan's Ghost um, all come about? Like, what's the podcast? Yeah, so Finn actually messaged me. Most of the guests I, I have asked and said, hey, do you want to do this? But, but uh, it was funny because I was kind of thinking who I was going to have on for that week because it was right after Bosti's episode. And uh, Finn messaged me and said, hey, do you want – hey, man, I'll do your podcast if you want me to. And I said, oh, well, well why not? You know, like uh, Finn would be a great guy to talk to. He's a funny guy. And later that week it was actually when the coronavirus caused the total sports cancellation, right? So – by the time Sunday rolled around, we were ready to record. It was a very weird feeling. Everybody was pretty bummed out. But I started thinking about it, and I said to myself, what better person to have on for this episode than Finn? You know, someone who can inject some levity into things. Um, a guy who, you know, for God's sakes, he pretends to be the ghost of a, of, <laughs> of a hockey player who played 100 years ago. You know, so it just seemed to me to be the perfect thing for that time. Did he and, come in character? Uh, sorry? Did he come in character? No, so, uh, so uh, he's, um, and that was actually something we discussed. Um, so Finnegan's ghost is not so much a character as like an alias. The guy, um, I don't, I'm obviously not going to reveal his name, but, but the guy um, is very much who you see on the account, right? He's a very funny, funny, genuine guy. He's a very nice guy. Finn, I can't say enough about him. Um, I love talking to Finn. Um, I, I want, definitely want to have him back again at some point. It was actually the first podcast he had ever done. So um, so that was really cool. I got to have the podcast debut of Finnegan's Ghost. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, we talked about the whole character thing, and I asked him if it was, like, a character thing or if it was more just a funny name kind of thing. And he goes, no, it's, like, uh, it's you know, like Bonk's Mullet. Like, it's just something funny that people use as their name. You know, Bonk's Mullet doesn't actually pretend to be Radic Bonk's hair. It's just him with a different, you know, with a funny name. So, so yeah, um, Finn was awesome. I loved having him on, and I would, I would have him on again in a heartbeat. I did get a chance to listen to that episode, too. I think that, if I'm not mistaken, was the first episode of Internal Budget I heard, and I was like, well, oh, this is actually really cool. Like, and as a fellow sense podcaster, I like to seek those kind of shows out to see, yeah. you know, because 
we kind of live in a bubble where we only do what we know. And when I hear like sense call-ups, cosmic point gas, yourself, uh, six sends, whatever kind of podcast, I'm always very fascinated to hear those kinds of episodes. And I, I thought that was really good too, as well as the Haley. And I'm looking forward to your latest episode. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one too. That one, I, I'm really excited for people to hear this one. So, Brandon, with that out of the way, let's jump right into the 2019-20 Ottawa Center second half recap. So, coming into sure. the second half of the season, Ottawa was 16-20-5 with strong performances in the months of November-December from guys like Jean-Gabriel Pajot and Anthony Declare, while also facing challenges such as Bobby Ryan stepping away from the team in November to enter rehab and Scott Sabrin's serious injury in Boston. After a reduced second half of only 30 games, the Sens went 9-14-7. Much can be said about the second half with the emergence of Marcus Hogberg, Anthony Declare's 20-game goalie streak, the departures of Pajot and Jim Little, as well as the return of Bobby Ryan in February, capped off with a hat-trick in his first game back. With all that being said, what kind of expectations did you have for the Senators coming into the second half? Oh, I expected them to totally bottom out, just because, you know, the trade deadline is obviously in the second half of the season. The second half is where the good teams hit their stride and where the bad teams get worse because they sell off their good assets, right? So you look at the St. Louis Blues last year, the second half of the season, they turned from one of the bottom place teams into an absolute wagon. And uh, so I expected the kind of opposite thing to happen for Ottawa. They had had they had put up a good fight through November, December, but I really, really expected them to just get demoed through the last half of the season. Um, and that's just what happens when you trade good players. The Senators were not a good all-around team and then you when you rid them of guys like Pajot who are so valuable um, it's it's bound to hurt the overall on-ice product so my expectations were low uh, I was looking more towards what they were going to do asset management wise if any of the kids from Belleville were going to get call-ups who was going to get traded for what so that was kind of more of my focus for the second half of the season but in terms of the on-ice play I didn't expect much at all. So let's talk a little bit about the upcoming offseason for the Senators, given the level of excitement and anticipation from the fans. On top of Ottawa having two lottery picks as well as a third first-rounder and a number of others in this draft, there's also the RFA statuses of play- players like Anthony DeClaire and Connor Brown, as well as the potential long-term extension for Brady DeChuck. Looking forward, how important do you see the 2020 draft and this offseason in general as it pertains to the future direction of our rebuild? It's absolutely critical. Uh... Like I said, I followed the team since 2007. I haven't been around for an off season that was this important, not just to the next few years, but to the overall future of the franchise. You know, with such a stacked draft this year and the amount of picks that the Senators have, they really, really have a chance to totally alter the course of their future uh, based on who they get. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I don't think any team has had this sort of opportunity before, except no. maybe the Vancouver Canucks at the turn of the millennium when they got both the Sedins. Yeah, but even then there was there you know, you're not talking about Alexi Lafreniere caliber players in that draft, right? Exactly. That, that top three alone or that top two alone. Like you get Alexi Lafreniere or you get Quentin Byfield in that top two. And right there that's your franchise player. That's your guy for the next, you know, however many years. So the Senators have the opportunity to change their franchise future with one pick. And now you add another pick in the top 10 and another pick uh, that'll probably end up somewhere around, I think, 20th, 21st or something like that. So it, it, it's vital. Um, it's vital that they nail it. And in terms of the contract situation, that's huge too. 
I, I don't know if Brady Kachuk gets done this summer, but uh, I think guys like Anthony Duclair are going to be important going forward. To me, the big one is Connor Brown. To me, that's one the Senators need to get done for at least five years and get him nice and locked in because he's going to be a key contributor in the bottom six when this team is competitive again. He's going to be a guy that wins you playoff games and even playoff series. So there's so much at stake, um, which is kind of funny considering the fact that this team hasn't threatened anyone at all for the last three years. So it's pretty crazy to think that so much of this team's future rides on this one summer. And then, and this is something Ian Mendez and I talked about today for episode 12 of Internal Budget, now you factor in all this COVID-19 stuff and you don't know how that's going to affect things going forward. So not only is it an important offseason for the Senators, but it's where one is, it's one where so much is up in the air. Especially with some of the spooky uh, things that other GMs have been su- suggesting, even including a playoff for the top pick, which is, I think is Dude, kind of absurd. That. Yeah. Well, like, how does it work in a world where you can trade the lottery picks? It doesn't make sense. It, it's it's ridiculous, and especially when you consider the fact that some teams in the top ten don't own their first round pick. What the hell is San Jose going to do in a tournament like that? Ottawa has yeah, two picks; they get a buy. Like it's nonsense. And the other part of it too is, and this is something Haley and I talked about: the Senators aren't going to win a tournament against the New York Rangers, you know, or any of those other playoff bubble teams that are going to be in this type of tournament. So now you have teams like Ottawa and Detroit, who are god awful and in desperate need of that upper-tier talent that you get from a lottery pick, and now they don't get it. They're picking later in the, they're picking later in the first round, so now you've condemned them to sucking for, long, for more, for longer, for, for more years now. So it's totally counterintuitive. It's definitely something that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I would eat my shoe if that happened. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it, but it, it's a pretty nonsensical idea. Yeah. And then the draft lottery is punitive enough as it is because Buffalo managed to trigger the entire hockey world five years ago. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, can you imagine if Buffalo had won that and then we have to deal with Connor McDavid four times a year? Oh, I would. I think I would feel worse for Connor McDavid. Um, <laughs> you know, just being in a just being in a team that has shown no ability to get anything together from the hockey off side of it. You look at that Skinner contract and, you know, some of the contracts they've given out are just shockingly bad. Um, I don't have a lot of love for the Sabres. I guess that comes from me being uh, uh, jumping on the Senators, uh, the Senators' boat in 2007. But uh, I got a feel for guys like Jack Eichel. I mean, you know, like he's such a talented player and to have nothing around him is frustrating, even for a guy who's not a fan. But they do have good prospects. Um, they do have Casey Middlestad. They do have Tage Thompson. They do have Uko Pekalukkanen, who's going to be a really, really good NHL goaltender. So hopefully things are on the rise in Buffalo. But yeah, I think Connor McDavid is more thankful to be in Edmonton than he would be in Buffalo. And we also can't forget Buffalo has Rasmus Dahlin as well on defense. Yes, Rasmus Dahlin, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so it's um. So the pieces are there for them. It's just going to be a question of getting, I think, a management group in there that knows what they're doing. Um, I think their best bet would be to promote Ralph Kruger to GM or president of Hockey Ops just so he can oversee it, everything. I think he's better from a management, better suited for a management side with that team than he is a head coach. Um, and from there, it's just about prospect development and maybe getting a couple, a couple more in the draft this year. 
A few moments ago, we mentioned the possibility and the potential of a long-term extension for Brady Tuchuk this coming Canada Day. Following the long-term extension yeah. given to Thomas Shabbat back in September, the next player fans anticipated a contract extension to was Tuchuk. While the Sens have the option to wait until... Or the Sens have the option to wait to get him an extension. I can't see Pierre Doran waiting to get this done following Tuchuk's 44 points this season. What kind of deal do you see the Ottawa Senators giving him if they do give him one on July 1st? Well, it's not necessarily up just up to Pierre Dorian, right? Like Brady Kachuk might not want to might not want to sign until next summer. So, in terms of what kind of deal, I think Pierre Dorian is desperately trying to get Brady Kachuk signed uh, for a longer term. I think Matthew Kachuk signed for something like five, six, seven years. Um, I, I think the goal for Brady would be something like eight years. In terms of a dollar figure you have to think he's going to be making at least in the ballpark of Thomas Shabbat. I think they are both equally valuable. Shabbat didn't have as good of a season this year, but you know, anybody who's devaluing because devaluing him because of that is out of their tree. He's a phenomenal defenseman and he's going to be a huge, he's going to win a Norris trophy one day, at least, at least one. So in terms of Brady, um, I think anywhere from the seven to $9 million range, for eight years is not out of the question. Now is the possibility there that maybe he has a down year next year and signs for a five or six year deal. We're at somewhere around 6 million, maybe, but I think it's going to be high term, high dollar for Brady. And he deserves that, right? Like he's, he's proven that not only is he valuable on the ice, but he's extremely valuable from a leadership standpoint. And as a guy who is always going to be the motor of the team, and even without Mark Stone, as even after Mark Stone traded, he didn't really slow down. So I think the team understands Brady's value. It's just a question of what they can agree to and, and what Brady wants, right? Hopefully Brady wants to be here long term. Maybe he'll want to do a bridge deal first. Maybe he'll want to do four or five years first and kind of see where it goes from there. Have his first real big contract when he's, you know, 27, 28. But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um I think it's. I think it gets done next summer, and I think it's going to be probably seven years minimum if the Senators get what they want. Yeah, because I know the the obvious comparable contract is the one that his brother signed, and both players yeah. are really similar trajectories. So, three four years at seven million also isn't out of the question. No, definitely not. Um, I hope not. Uh, I hope if, if they're going to get Brady done, it's with term because he's only going to get better as he gets older, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's. I think he would. I mean, how old? How old is he now? Is he going to be 20, 21 this year? Yeah, something like that. No, uh, yeah, yeah, twenty one this year. Yeah, so he's going to be twenty one this year. Imagine, and he's already big and strong and bullying guys, and you know, just owning the front of the net. Now imagine when he's twenty five or he's twenty six, and he's filled out. He's got all his coordination. His body, his body has you know caught up to him. Like it's going to be a stud. Like he's gonna, I think he'll end up being maybe even better than his dad. So, I I can't say enough about Brady Kachuk. Um, I think we're not gonna understand his true value until he's older, the same much in the same vein that we did with Mark Stone. But I definitely see him becoming that Mark Stone caliber player for sure. 
Coming into this season, one player outside of Tuchuk and Shabbat that I couldn't wait to watch was Anthony Declare. Now, when Declare arrived in Ottawa last year as part of the Ryan Dezingle trade, he was merely a throw-in that didn't spark much fan excitement given his career was on life support when we got him. He instantly turned his career around and became an offensive star, potting 14 points in 20 games last season, and then led the, point, led the team in points for most of the first half of the season. His second half, however, was a totally different story. As I said off the top, he went on the 20-game goal streak and overall only had 8 points in 24 games. Given that he is an RFA July 1st, and with the leverage he gained with his play in the first half swinging in Ottawa's favor with his second half, how do you see co his contract situation going this summer? I don't think he's going to take less money than Colin White, uh, especially after the season that White had. Um, look, Anthony Duclair showed that he has all the makings of a really good goal scorer. Like, I think he showed flashes of a 40-goal scorer this year. So, um, in terms of his deal, I think the Senators are going to be reluctant to give him a longer term, as they probably should be. Um, at no fault of Anthony Duclair's, right? It's just that this is a guy who struggled with consistency for his entire career. Um, he's kind of yet to string two really good seasons together. So, I, I'm not really feeling bad about Anthony Duclair's season. Look... <laughs> And this is something I've talked about before. You got to take into account the circumstances of that twenty-game goal streak, right? Um, were the bounces not going his way? Absolutely. Was he doing some things wrong? Absolutely. But he was deployed for a lot of that stretch with Chris Tierney and Vladislav Nemestikov, who are not slouches by any means, but they're not the type of player that is going to help Anthony Duclair score a lot of goals, right? Like. Anthony, Anthony Duclair scored a ton of goals when he was playing with Pajot, when he was playing with Kachuk, when he was playing with Logan Brown. So if you get him a number one center, if you get him a Quinton Byfield, or even if you get him a line mate like Alexi Lafreniere, he's going to do amazing things. He's going to score a ton. So I think I see his contract being somewhere around the five million range, uh, a little more than Colin White, but not a crazy amount. I don't see the Senators wanting to do more than three years. But uh, like a five a five million for three years would be good with me. I hope the Senators extend him. I think he's going to end up being a key player going forward. But I think you wait on the term for now. Because mm -hmm, I know one thing that and Tim and I talked about on the main show for our third season was that even when he was going on that twenty game goalless streak, you could definitely see that he wasn't a, just a plug out there. He was definitely working right. hard. His twenty foot two hundred foot game was really good. He was back-checking, forward-checking, doing all those kind of things right, even though he wasn't scoring, right? And I think yeah. for his contract extension, maybe the Senators factor that in as well, as well as for his sure. goal scoring. Yeah, and he hit posts, too, and there was a couple times in that uh, that game where they played the Leafs. Oh, I forget who was in that for the Leafs. It was, it was Jack Johnson, Johnson, right? It was Campbell, yeah. Um, it was Campbell, right? Jack Campbell? Campbell, yeah. Jack yeah, Johnson's yeah. the defenseman. Defenseman, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, Campbell um, Campbell made some really big saves on him. So he had a lot of opportunities to score goals. He was doing the right things. Sometimes it just doesn't go your way. I don't think anyone should use that second half as an indictment of Anthony Duclair. I think the Senators have a really good player there, and they're going to see it as the team gets better and as he's surrounded with a better supporting cast. With his coming offseason bringing much change and excitement to the team and their fans, one player who sadly appears to be departing the team is longtime goalie Craig Anderson. When we did our 2019-20 Ottawa Senators storyline episode back in September, 
Tim and I talked about Craig and this potentially being his final year, given he is an RFA or UFA this summer. Craig has always been a guy that I don't think up until recently he's been truly appreciated for what he has brought to the team. His tenure has been fascinating given that I feel that he has been seen more as a stopgap by the team until a guy like Robin Leonard or Andrew Hammond or whoever was ready to take over. Despite Andy being considered a good year, bad year goalie, majority of his tenure has been a success given he has backstopped the Senators to a number of playoff bursts and is now the winningest goalie in franchise history. As a fan, how do you look back on Craig Anderson's time? As an Ottawa center. He's the greatest goaltender in Senators history. I don't think that's up for debate. Uh, look, some goalies have had more success. Um, Ray Emery is still the only goalie that's ever backstopped the Senators to a Stanley Cup final. But when you look at everything Anderson's done, uh, you mentioned that he's the winningest goaltender in franchise history. Just some of the playoff runs that they've been on, too. That uh, One that a lot of people forget about is the 2012 series against the Rangers. That was just a seven-game war. The Senators were not even supposed to make it to a fifth, sixth game. And they had the series won until they until they lost a, a game six in, not, in kind of not great fashion. And then they lost a the game seven by one goal hitting a post. And a lot of that was Craig Anderson. He stood on his head for that series. In 2013, he was a big part of the reason they beat Montreal so badly and made it to the second round. Uh, the Hamburglar run, uh, he came into that series after Hammond got kind of lit up and then he backstopped the Senators to a sixth game that they probably should have won. So, uh, and then again, obviously 2017, he was just on another level. Like, uh, I was at game five against the Rangers that year and he was, and he was a huge reason why they won that game. He made some amazing saves and, um, and not, not only that, it's just a guy that's meant so much to the fans and to the community, especially playing through that seven, 2017 season with his wife's cancer diagnosis. And I'll never forget that shutout game against Edmonton. And I really wanted them to win that year, especially for Andy. But uh, to me, you look back on his career and, you know, no cups, nothing past the conference final. But I don't think there's a shadow of a doubt that Craig Anderson's the greatest goaltender the Senators have ever had. Maybe you guys disagree. But that's where I land on it for sure. Yeah, the tough thing is, is it's just because the hard. But at the same time, I don't think any sense goalie really has the hardware. So I don't think he'll get to a hardware argument until the Sens actually win a cup. That's going to be the thing, right? Like, I don't think I don't see how you can deny Craig Anderson that. And, and the other part of it is this: Craig Anderson has been the Senators' uh, bona fide goaltender for almost 10 years now like he's been the unquestioned starter for almost 10 years you, you know you had some brief stints with Leonard and with Hammond but none of them really lasted long uh what other Senators goaltender has had that kind of longevity right Ray Emery only had really a couple seasons Hasek had half a season Leem had I think four years or something like that um Brian Elliott Tug never had it exactly and then you have even Ron Tugnut who was the Senators one of the Senators key guys through the 90s he split a lot of starts with Damian Rhodes. He got traded after he fell off. Barrasso wasn't there long. Craig Anderson's been the only goaltender that they've had has been that has been their unquestioned guy between the pipes for an extended period of time. So, to me, it, it it's not even a question. Craig Anderson is the greatest goaltender in Senators history. It always boggles my mind that he came here on a one for one recl reclamation trade for Brian Elliott. Yep. Yeah, and you know, and people look back on that trade, and you know, they think that the Senators should have stuck with Ben Bishop, and you know, or whoever, and and there's some merit to be made. There's some merit to that, obviously, but uh, you can only work with what you got, right? For all we know, had Ben Bishop stayed in Ottawa, or had you know Brian Elliott stayed in Ottawa, things never would have 
taken off. And so, so it's hindsight's always twenty twenty. But looking back on it, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted to have either of those guys ahead of Craig Anderson for the last ten years. Maybe Bishop, obviously, but all in all, I don't think it would have made a huge difference in how the Senators performed and even twenty seventeen because the reason they lost was certainly not Craig Anderson. You know, they did they if you look back on that run, they overachieved big time. They got outplayed oh, yeah. in a lot of the games and Craig Anderson stole a lot of games for them. So yeah, there's nobody I would have wanted to run with for the last ten years for sure. No, I totally agree with that. And I know there's been some debate on Sense Twitter over the last couple of weeks whether Craig Anderson's number should be retired or whether he should be honored by the Sens. I'm probably the minority. I don't think he's going to get his number retired by the Sens, but I do think when he retires, he will be honored by the Ottawa Senators, for sure. Uh, yeah, he seems like a prime ring of honor candidate to me. Yeah, uh, that's, that's something that the Senators should utilize more often. You can make the argument that Chris Phillips shouldn't have had his number retired. I am more than okay with Big Rig having his number in the rafters. But to me, other guys like Chris Neal, um, Jason Spezza, Anderson, those guys are more Ring of Honor types. I think the next guy you retire would be Eric Carlson. Um, you know, even I think uh, down the line, maybe that's a good will gesture from maybe a new ownership group um, after Carlson's career is done, obviously. But uh, to me, he's the only guy that really strikes me as, um, I don't want to say deserving because all these guys brought so many different things, right, to the team. But to me, I think the guy who fits the bill for having his number retired next would be Carlson. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I know that there was some debate whether Chris Phillips should have had his number retired. And you can look at other teams, most notably Colorado, when they retired Adam Foote's number 52. And there was people saying, well, why did he get his number retired? Like, he didn't put up great offensive numbers for the Avalanche. He didn't really – he was on those cup-winning teams, but – Really, if you really look at his career, like I th- he might have had a hundred goals in his career, and I think he played twenty years or whatever. Yeah, he had the recognition too, though. He was an Olympian, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was on the 2002 team. Um, I could be wrong there, but uh, but yeah, it, again, with a guy like Foot, it just comes down to longevity, and a lot of guys like that you don't appreciate until you're actually in the market watching them every night, right? Like we have an, we have a different appreciation for Chris Phillips than anyone else would have because we watched him every night. We know how valuable he was as a shutdown guy, as a top pairing guy. Um, the fact of the matter is the Sens don't make that 07 run. They don't make that 03 run. They don't make, uh, you know, they don't really have any of the success up until about that 2012 time without Chris Phillips because he was a key guy. If you're ever in doubt about this, go back to the 2007 playoffs um, and watch the first round against Pittsburgh and watch the work that him and Volchenkov did against Sidney Crosby and his line. Um, He was just a guy who was totally instrumental to the earlier success that that team had. So, again, Phillips is a guy who you don't really appreciate until you're watching him every night. Like, he'll mean more to us than he'll ever mean to the NHL as a whole. But... Yeah, to me, he's a guy who's deserving of that. I think. I well, he was also like he's such a blood and sweat guy, and I think uh, it's def- the art of the shutdown defenseman is something that's kind of gone from modern the modern NHL. So yeah, I think it's hard for newer fans and uh, people currently involved in the art of the sport to truly appreciate. Well, I think the yeah, role of the shutdown defenseman. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say. Well, the role of the shutdown defenseman. Me personally, I think has evolved over time. Whereas the stay-at-home shutdown defenseman was like what Chris Phillips did, where he would stay at the blue line and stop the other guys from coming through. Where 
nowadays in the new NHL, every defenseman has to skate, they have to handle the puck, they have to be able to make plays. And so you can stop the plays, like you could be that kind of shut down defenseman type of player, but you also need to have some offensive senses as well to your game. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think the closest thing we've seen to that since then is probably Mark Mathot or even Dylan DeMello. Um, but even yeah, Mathot would probably be the one just because he didn't really have much of an offensive upside. DeMello would chip in points every now and then, but Mathot was that key stand at the blue line guy, let Eric Carlson run around and work his magic, and then and then stop the stop the opposing team's top guys. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that the true stay at home defenseman is something that's. Um, I don't want to say gone, but it's something that's certainly less common these days. I think more teams are transitioning to everybody having some kind of two-way side of their game, just opting for balance overall rather than top-loaded insane talent. So that's probably something that has that probably has something to do with it. But I think Chris Phillips is certainly from a bygone era, and uh, I don't know that Ottawa will ever see a guy like that again. So again. I'm fully in the camp that Phillips deserves to have his number retired. Hmm. Yeah, like the only real stay home defense I can really think of in modern times is Nick Yarmelson. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a pretty good comparison. Um, even guys like Cronwall um, back in the day, I say back in the day, it really wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it's just the game is so different now. The game has transitioned to such a speed, skill game. Like I said, if you go back and watch a lot of that 07 run, a lot of it's pretty messy hockey. I just rewatched Game 5 from the Sabres series. I think neither team broke 30 shots, and that's a game that went to overtime because there was so much congestion in the mid lane. It was such a, a such a far more physical game that you didn't see a lot of those chances in open space. So today, you know, guys like that, um, uh, I don't think Chris Phillips would have a hard time in any era. But um, you're certainly more likely to see guys that have a little more offensive upside. <clears throat> right. Let's talk Probably a little agree. bit. About, go ahead. Let's talk a little bit about Dylan DeMello because last season, Mello stats-wise didn't have a bad year with 10 assists and 49 games. However, overall, I feel that DJ Smith misused him for most of the season, given that he was mostly a second to third pairing right shot defenseman, as opposed to being paired with Thomas Shabbat all of 2018-2019. Overall, would you agree with that statement that DJ misused DeMello last season with a sense? I wouldn't say he misused him. And the only reason for that is wherever you put Dylan DeMello, he's going to do good things. He's just that kind of player. He's just such a steady all-around guy that he makes people around him better. You can certainly make the argument that he should have been playing with Thomas Shabbat rather than Mark Borowiecki. I don't think that's unfair to say. But look what he did for Boro's game, too. A big part of the reason why Boro had such a... Uh, such an such an up year, if that is even grammatically correct, such a good year, I guess, is because of DeMello. Um, DeMello really steadied his game and um, just gave him that safety valve, right? So, yeah, um, so just so Borough had to carry less of the load. Look, every coach has their guy. Um, every coach has guys they trust and guys that they're willing to run with no matter what. That guy for DJ Smith looks like it's Nikita Zaitsev. You can make the argument that maybe he shouldn't trust Zaitsev as much, but I don't think Zaitsev has had a terrible year either. I don't think he's been awful for Ottawa. But yeah, like I, 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 do, I would have liked to see Demello play with Thomas Shabbat more, just based on last year how well they played together and the obvious chemistry they had. 
but I would hesitate to say he misused DeMello, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's I guess one thing I do want to say is I think we get up in arms a lot over third-line players a lot as fans, and I think part of that is just part of being a fan. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, Dylan DeMello was a third-line guy in San Jose. He probably wasn't going too far, won't go too far up the line up in Winnipeg and will probably land somewhere to be that third-line guy. Uh, I mean, I think DeMello definitely has the top four upside to him. Um, we saw that with Shabbat. Uh, I think he's a guy who a lot of the things that he does well, you don't notice, right? And and another important, important thing to remember here is DJ Smith called Dylan DeMello one of the most underrated guys in the league, right? So it, I don't think he misunderstands DeMello's value, uh, and I don't think he doesn't think that Dylan DeMello is a good player. I think he thought the better deployment for him was with a guy like Borbietsky and maybe have a guy like Shabbat try to elevate Zaitsev's game or vice versa. Um, you know, we can argue until we're blue in the face about whether that was right or that was wrong, but I do think that there was a method there. Uh, one of the things I was critical about Kibushi for was I didn't understand the method to the madness a lot of the time. There didn't seem to be a lot of structure, uh, but Smith's structure is pretty clear. And um, you know there was I think there's a reason you didn't see a lot of variation with the defense pairings. So yeah, I mean I would have liked to see Demello with Shabbat more, but I don't think having him with Boro was the worst thing in the world either. Fair enough. So let's move our attention over to the man known as Hot Sam Bacho, Thomas Shabbat. When we did our first half recap with Alex Metzger, one thing I commented regarding Shabbat's first half was that his overall performance seemed to be inconsistent as he had a revolving door of defense partners and as well with his growing pains as a young player. Regarding his second half performance, you can tell he was gaining confidence back as we saw on a number of, a night, number of nights that he would rush up the ice with the pocket and overall just look like a more consistent player. That being said, though, you can tell he was beginning to wear down having to play 30-plus minutes a night and as a resort being forced to conserve his energy. How do you feel about Shabbat's performance in the second half and overall would you agree his performance improved in the second half? <laughs> Yeah, it definitely improved. Uh, I liked a lot of what I saw from Thomas Shabbat this season. His game was more understated this year uh, just because he didn't have the point totals. And and listen, that's something that's going to come, right? Like, you, you can't expect a guy like Shabbat to put up crazy amounts of points um, on a team that's as bad as the Senators because they're a team that doesn't score a crazy amount of goals. Uh, I think once Shabbat has a better supporting cast around him, once he has better defense partners, uh, more reliable defense partners, and a better all-around forward core, those points will come again. Um, I think a big part of the reason he had so many points last year was because of guys like Mark Stone. You know, so so I'm not worried about Shabbat. I think he reminds me a lot of a young Eric Carlson, in the sense that. He's a guy who knows how skilled he how sorry knows how skilled he is, knows he can outskate guys, and he tries to do that a lot. Sometimes it's the right thing to do, and sometimes it puts him in a bad spot. He'll make a bad turnover, or the chance he got wasn't worth the kind of risk he took. So it, it's something that he's going to learn over time, and playing with better partners and playing with experienced guys is going to help that. That's one of the reasons why I really like that the Sens have Ron Hainsey. Um, I know that's not a popular opinion, but I think Brian Hainsey is going to go a long way to just teaching guys like Thomas Shabbat and Eric Branch from the X's and O's of playing the position at the NHL level. 
Uh, DJ Smith said having Ainsley out there is like having another assistant coach. So I think Shabbat is going to just keep improving. Um, I don't think there is any cause to worry about his game at all. In terms of his second half in particular, I think a lot of it came down to him not taking as many risks as he took in the first half, but also it's something I talked about to Claire. Sometimes the bounces just go your way, and it seemed like the bounces were starting to go Shabbat's way. So I think in a few years we're going to have we're going to be really glad to have Thomas Shabbat, probably more so than we are now. And that kind of Norris Trophy potential is going to reveal itself. Well, we're talking about a guy who's 22 and at least on the fancy stat side, every year it's getting better. Yeah. The guy still has shoes to grow into, and uh, we're going to see it. And it's kind of funny because uh, talking about Rod Hainsey, it's almost as if uh, Rod Hainsey is, sorry, Shabbat is to Carlson as Hainsey is to Philip Kuba. Because early in Hainsey's career, believe it or not, he was an offensive team man. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, when Ron Hainsey retires, whether that's this year or next, I want him as an assistant coach in Ottawa. When you have guys raving about a player's hockey IQ like that, that's something you don't want to lose. It reminds me a lot of Luke Richardson. He played the one year in Ottawa, and then he came back you know, to the organization to coach. Jason Smith did the same thing. One of the image of, images that was most striking to me from this year was uh, Ron Hainsey writing on the whiteboard at practice and showing some of the other players like what to do in certain situations. I think a guy like that is invaluable, and I think that's an influence that we're not going to see on Shabbat for another couple of years at least. So, yeah. Well, I mean, when we hear the first loud F-bomb, we'll know it's there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we heard a lot of those from Carlston. So once he... Once he kind of takes that accountability, I don't want to say accountability. Once he, um, once it, once his game begins to round out, um, and again, a lot of it comes down to supporting cast too. I can't stress that enough. The Senators have not had a deep roster for a long time now. So once all those things kind of come into play, and they're going to happen around the same time, I would think you're going to see the type of player that Thomas Shabbat really is. So one of the big surprises for Ottawa this season has to be the emergence of goaltender Marcus Hogberg. Coming into the season, Hogberg was a guy that fans were beginning to lose faith in a bit, given that he had been demoted to the ECHL and was getting buried in the depth chart. Hogberg stepped up his game big time following the injuries to Craig Anderson and Anders Nilsson, putting together a number of really great starts despite only having a 5-8-8 record. Overall, what were your thoughts on Hogberg's performance in the second half? Oh, he, he blew me away, and I don't think I'm... Um alone in that camp by any means. I'm just like everyone else. Uh, I was admittedly kind of looking towards guys like Gustafson and Decord and to be the, the future of the Sens in net, guys like Sogard too. Um, that was compounded by the fact that Hogberg didn't get off to a good start in Belleville this year, stats-wise. So when he came up, I didn't really know what to expect. And then from there, he just looked poised. He looked settled down. He looked like a guy that had been playing in the NHL for years, you know. Um, he didn't look like a rookie in net. Um, and how many games did the Senators lose in an overtime or a shootout because of because Hogberg held them in the game, right? So um, his movement looked a lot better this year. Uh, he looked more comfortable. That was one big thing. He didn't look comfortable when he was called up uh, for that brief stint in Ottawa last year. But I really liked what I saw from Hogberg. And I think as of right now, he's the goaltender of the future in Ottawa. I, I, I don't know how... You can debate that. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see Anders Nilsson return from that last concussion, and uh, 
you know, I really want to send my best to him because that's some scary stuff. I, I, I know from experience yeah. that, I, yeah, like I know from experience that the longer they go on, the harder they are to deal with and recover from. So I'm really hoping he can come back and be the player he was before. But as it stands right now, I'm very comfortable with a Nilsson Hogberg tandem in net. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Marcus Hogberg emerge as the bona fide starter next year. And we're talking about a guy who's 25. Yeah, exactly. So he's in. The, he's at that physical prime now, right? Like he's he's fully grown into his body, and he's probably at his at his athletic peak for the next three to five years. So now you're going to get to see the type of player he really is physically. Um, it's a question of whether or not he can keep his technique up. And um, I mean, mentally, like it doesn't look like we're going to have any problems with Hogberg. Like he's was in every game, even games he got lit up, he would come back the next game and he would have a really strong effort. So I have very little concerns about Marcus Hogberg. Um, I guess the one thing I would be concerned about is if this is his ceiling. Um, and if that's the case, can the Senators win with him? Time will tell. Um, we'll have to see how he looks when the team is starting to round into shape and begin to kind of throw its, uh, begin, begin to become playoff contenders again. But for right now, I'm really pleased with Marcus Hogberg, and I, I'm very comfortable with him in net next year. Well, at the very least, if this is his ceiling, he's a good backup. Yeah, exactly. He's at least You at least know he's a guy you can throw in the pipes, and he's going to give you a solid game. I think right now, he's Anders Nilsson. Um, the question will be whether he can become a Craig Anderson, or you know maybe even better. Uh, I think that's what you're looking at with Hogberg. Um, I think his ceiling is probably around peak prime Craig Anderson level, which, as you saw in 2017, was good enough to win a Stanley Cup. There's no doubt in my mind that if the Senators get by Pittsburgh, they win the Cup that year. So I so if he becomes Craig Anderson, uh, that's a huge win for me, especially considering guys were looking more towards Gustafson and Decord. And that's the other part of it, right? Like the question is how those guys develop. If, those, if one of those guys is, develops into a superstar elite goaltender, then that changes things with Hogberg too. Like you said, he, he probably become, becomes a backup then. So it's one of those things where time will tell what his future is going to be. But in terms of this year or even the next two, three years, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of Marcus Hogberg, and I expect really good things from him. I think for myself, the one thing I have for Marcus Hogberg is that because we only saw the small sample size this past season – we see like okay, he's a very solid goaltender. He can you can put him in. He'll win a couple of games. I'm more interested in seeing how he does over a full 82 game schedule. And that's my yeah, opinion. that's true. You know, yeah, because some, it'll be a question if he if he can stay healthy and stay and you know and keep the conditioning up and everything like that. Uh, the, the other part of it too is in the future seasons won't be as rigorous as this one, just because he's going to be facing less shots. Right, he gets bombarded a lot of nights because of just because of the guys he has in front of them. And that's not a knock on them. It's just the reality of the Senator's situation. So in a few years, when this team is hopefully really good and, you know, is near the top of the league, if ideally, then he's going to be facing less shots every night and the workload will be lessened a little bit. But that is a question that you do need to be answered. I mean, this season and the way it, I don't want to say ended, but the way it was put on pause has left a lot of question marks with, how things are going to go in the future. And I think Marcus Hogberg falls into that category for sure. 
The 2019-20 season had some real feel-good stories, including the return of Scott Sabrin and David Aris beating the Leafs. For Ottawa fans, I feel that the biggest feel-good story of the year has to be the return of Bobby Ryan. Ryan has been a lightning rod of controversy or lightning rod for criticism during his tenure with the Senators, whether from a contract standpoint or his on-ice performance. In November, he announced he was stepping away from the team to enter the NHL substance abuse program before returning in February. Bobby seemed to be a completely different player once he returned. He looked more energetic, and overall his performance greatly improved on the ice, which he capped off by scoring a hat-trick in his first game back versus Vancouver. What has been your overall opinion on Ryan's tenure as a senator, and how happy were you for him when he returned? Oh, I was thrilled for him when he came back. Knowing what he went through, uh, you can't help but not root for the guy, especially a guy like Bobby Ryan, who, you know, you can... You can definitely say that he hasn't lived up to his contract. I think that's more than fair. But he's been a good soldier throughout his entire time. He's never complained about his role or anything like that. He was an animal during the 2017 playoffs. He's a big reason why the Sens got as far as they did. So I've always had love for Bobby Ryan. Um, and to see him come back and you know have such a good performance and the crowd chanting Bobby, it, it made me emotional at the time. Like I was tearing up watching the game. It was a really cool moment. It's definitely something that I'll never forget, something that's up there with Andy's shutout of the Oilers. So I was thrilled for him. Um, I couldn't be happier for Bobby Ryan. And more than that, I couldn't be happier for Bobby Ryan, the person, rather than Bobby, the hockey player, right? I'm really just glad he's doing better. Um, I'm glad that he got treated for his problems and he's found success and some peace there. As far as his overall tenure as a senator, it's obviously been up and down. He's never going to live up to that contract, but he's been good. He's been, he's been good. Um, for the overall, he's been good. Like I said, the 2017 run, um, that's something that I think will always kind of define Bobby Ryan's tenure as a senator, the way he played in that, uh, especially in the Boston and the uh, Pittsburgh series. Like he scored the overtime, he scored overtime goals in both those series. Uh, he tied the game in Game 6 against the Penguins before Hoffman scored to win it. So I think Bobby Ryan will always be remembered fondly in Ottawa. Is he a disappointment contract-wise? I mean, yeah. Like, if you're paying $7 million a year, especially back when $7 million meant as much as it did then, you're hoping for a guy that's going to put up crazy amounts of points. I think Bobby Ryan, as a middle six guy going forward, is going to be a good contributor for the Senators, but he'll never be at that form that he was in Anaheim for sure no but as for me personally and I don't think he's going to live up to that seven million at 32 or 33 years or whoever he is right now but I feel that given that Bobby is now sober and he has a very clear mind I can almost see him taking on more of a leadership role with the young core that we have in Ottawa in the next couple of years well that, yeah definitely I, I think they're very fond of him there um you can tell just by how happy the guys were for him when he came back and he clearly means a lot to that team and he means a lot to this fan base. You know, they love Bobby. So I think leadership is a good way to put it. Uh, I think he'll fit nicely into that role um, in that kind of bottom six type fashion. I think he'll score, you know, maybe on the high end, 30 points a year, maybe 40. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm more than happy with uh, Bobby Ryan at, at, at that price. In terms of that $7 million a year, that's obviously kind of tough to swallow, but it's not going to hurt the Sens for another two, three years anyway. And by then, I think his contract expires in 2023 or something like that. So so even then, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it won't matter too, too much in the long run. Uh, team's not exactly strapped for cap space. So 
I think Bobby has a leadership in a leadership role, uh, playing in the middle six, getting some points here and there, mentoring the young guys like like Josh Norris and Alex Formanton will be a really good spot for him and a good spot for the Senators overall. So, Tim, do you have any questions you want to ask Brandon before we head on to our rapid fire segment? No, it's been we've been going for a while and it's been good stuff. So I think it's time to let him go after rapid fire. <laughs> sure, glad I can live up to the hype. So, yeah, no kid. So, Brandon, before we let you go, do you mind humoring us with a quick rapid fire segment? Not at all. Let's do it. Okay. Just for the just so the listeners know, rapid fire was a segment started on the Jan Dad podcast when they were working for Fox Sports. Since they have joined TSN and left Fox Sports, they have abandoned rapid fire on their podcast. So I decided to take it and claim it as my own. Now, Brandon, <laughs> given that the COVID pandemic has started, we are actually going to change up the rapid fire segment a little bit with some of our questions. And we're going to start off with, since the COVID pandemic started, what has been the best thing you've seen on Netflix? Oh, Tiger King was pretty nuts. In terms of best, uh, I don't know, but it's probably the thing I enjoyed the most, the thing I was most invested in for sure. What has been your favorite go-to snack during this time? Um, I'm really digging the soft Chips Ahoy cookies. I'm trying not to eat too many oh, of them because I'm trying not to put on the quarantine 15, as they're calling it. Uh, but yeah, those have been my go-to the last little while. I'm loving them. Main delivery app. Uber Eats for sure. Great service. I've re- I've never really had any problems with them. I've had problems with the other ones, but uh, Uber Eats has always been good. Greatest Ottawa Senator not named Eric Carlson or Daniel Albertson? I don't think he can give it any- to anybody but Mark Stone. Maybe he doesn't have the tenure, but uh, I think in terms of impact and what he meant to the fan base, that's got to be the guy in both ends of the ice. He was just a, a dominant force. Uh, Runner-up would be Jason Spezza for sure, but uh, I'm going to give the slight edge to Mark Stone. Which is worse to put on spaghetti, ranch dressing or ketchup? <laughs> Ian and I talked about this today. Um, but... Uh, Oh, ranch. Ranch is just abhorrent. I mean, at least ketchup is good, but I, ranch has Thank zero you. gaming qualities in my mind. I cannot stand it. Okay, uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here because I actually tried the ranch dressing on spaghetti once. And oh. I, I, here's a th- hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> I only put a little bit on there, stirred it around. Actually, not as bad as you would think. It's really not. It adds a little bit of tangy to it, especially when you have just a plain tomato sauce. It's not that bad. I swear. Wait, you mix it with a cream sauce? I know I didn't put a liter of cream sauce in it, Tim. No, because it was funny because Chelsea and I were talking about this the other day, and she's like, "Well, ranch dressing's pretty similar to like an Alfredo sauce. So they, that probably works, but it's like, I thought you put the ranch dressing in the Alfredo. I didn't realize it was a tomato sauce. That's just weird. No, no, it was uh, like tomato uh, sauce with spaghetti. I put a little bit of ranch in it, stirred it out <laughs> in a bowl. I didn't put it in the pot, but I put it in a bowl. It's all right." Uh, if you had told me this beforehand i probably would have rethought doing this podcast (laughs) (laughs) see this is why i did this now see brandon this is why i don't tell the guests any of the stuff before we do it if you had to do a 100 meter foot race against one of your fellow silver seven writers which writer would you choose oh man i would have to say i'd probably go against Spencer. I feel like I would smoke Spencer, probably because he would drink too much iced coffee beforehand, 
and uh, I would save it for after, and he would be slowed down by that. So, Spencer, I got your ass. By the way, to be fair, I we are talking the... to a former varsity athlete. Yeah, but that was more no more known for uh, for hitting than for speed. Defensive, defensive line, I was plugging up gaps and rushing the passer. I wasn't running anybody down, that's for sure. <laughs> I love the fact, by the way, that you brought that up with uh, Haley Salvian when you had her on the podcast. I love her reaction to getting an iced coffee in February. I always have this picture in my mind of, if you remember the Andy Sutton, you're an expert moment. I just yes. imagine that was that's her reaction whenever she asked if you want an iced coffee in February. Just like, are, are you asking me or are you telling me? Yeah. <laughs> Were you there? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where we're always going to disagree on oh, well, I don't know. We're I, I we're big on iced coffee hive me and Spencer. Um but I mean, I understand if people don't want it when it's cold weather. That's why I kind of I gave Haley that one. I was like, oh, "Okay, I, I that's acceptable." If you had to choose between the 2D logo or the O for the Senators permanent jersey, which would you choose? 2D. You got to go back to a time when the team had some credibility, and I think that 2D will resonate with people more in that way. I love the O. Don't get me wrong. I'm wearing actually, I'm actually wearing a hat with the O on it right now. But uh, but I think the O would be better suited for on uh, alternate, and uh, you go with the 2D. Animal Crossing or Doom Eternal? I haven't played either. Um, if I were to play one, it would probably be Doom. But no, I haven't. I haven't touched either of them. Okay. Now to close out rapid fire, and I know that people who have followed you on Twitter have noticed this over the last couple of weeks, I've got to ask the all-important question. How will the Tampa Bay Buccaneers do with Tom Brady at quarterback? <laughs> We're going to the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, they're going to win it on home field with the GOAT with TB12. Uh, but no, seriously, um, I think that's definitely a goal. I think it's definitely a possibility now that wasn't there before. You're talking about a team that had one of the best overall front sevens in the league last year, despite not making the playoffs. Shaq Barrett was the sack king. Um, Jason Pierre-Paul getting a full season again will help. They got Indomitian Sue back, maybe at a little too much money. At linebacker, you got Devin White, who's an absolute stud, and Levante David, who, for my money, is the most underrated defensive player in the league. They do need to shore up the secondary and the offensive line a little bit, but um, you you know, you got Tom Brady at quarterback. You have the best receiving tandem in the league with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. There's no doubt in my mind that they could make a run, and I obviously hope to God they do. Oh, shut up, the Brady haters. Yeah, I was a Brady hater until he signed. I even tweeted. I said, if Tom Brady signs with Tampa, I will delete every tweet I made bashing him. I will worship at his altar and call him the GOAT. I'll buy his book. I'm not sorry. I'm making no apologies. I'm going full heel turn with this. Damn. So are you fine with him kissing his kids? I am now. (laughs) (laughs) You see, Brandon, as a Seahawks fan, I am never taking back anything I've ever said about Tom Brady. I'm sorry. I can't do it. That's understandable. Yeah. So, Brandon, we can't thank you enough for coming onto the podcast and doing our 2019-20 Ottawa Center second half recap. Now, two things before we let you go. First of all, where can the people find you on social media as well as your work with Silver7 and the Internal Budget Podcast? So you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Mackey 6 uh, The Internal Budget is just at Internal Budget. Silver7Sends.com is where you can catch all my writing, my incoherent ramblings. And similar incoherent ramblings can be found on the podcast. Uh, got a really cool episode coming out tomorrow with Ian Mendez that I am 
so psyched about i can't wait for you guys to hear it so be sure you check it out and thank you fellas for having me it was a blast anytime you want me to come back on i'm more than happy to we'll definitely have to get you on now last thing before you we let you... the ranch uh, yeah, got, yeah. <laughs> look you can here's the thing thinking, man we've had a good episode going yeah. here and like... <laughs> i was gonna say if we get him back next time tim brandon you could just open up with the ranch dressing comment <laughs> yeah i mean I don't know what your rules on profanity are for this podcast, but you might get some of it if you keep it up with the ranch talk. <laughs> okay. Now, final thing before we let you go, and it's always kind of a tradition every time we get to talk with somebody in the podcast to close it out this way. We usually get our guests to either yell or say the term hot Sam Bacho. So, Brandon, before we let you go, can we get a hot Sam Bacho from you? Oh, dear. Of course you can. The dog might start barking, but I'll give you one. Hot Sam Bacho. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you, fellas. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tim, I got to say, man, that was a really great episode with Silver Seven Sons writer Brandon Mackey. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if we scared him off or not. Hey, well, you know what? If he does return to the podcast, we'll definitely know that we didn't scare him off. Yeah, we need to get to my favorite story. Maybe we'll open up the... Next time we get him on, if we open up with that, he'll just he'll just click off at that point. Like, oh. Yeah, easy. so tim are you ready to head off into the close for another evening yeah sounds good to me first of all guys thank you so much for listening to the third line plug sentencecast i hope you've enjoyed it because believe me tim and i love recording it for you you can find us on the national podcast network where you can find our page at nationalpodcast.network where you can find our links to soundcloud google play and itunes we're also on Twitter at Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M9 on Honey Badger at Matt Great White Gipster, GR8, WATE Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the 2019 20 Ottawa Center second half recap with Brandon Mackey, shoot us an email at Third Line Plug Sensecast at gmail.com. So, Tim, I guess it's time to reveal that our next episode that we're going to be doing is, of course, the top five actual good things about the 2019 20 Ottawa Senators. And I feel like, unlike last year, we're not scraping the barrel this time. No, it's actually going to be a good one. I'm actually excited for it. Yeah, yeah. Until next time, guys. I am your host, Tina Gibson. And this has been Tim. Just Tim? Yeah, just Tim. Okay. Go Sens, guys. Woo!